quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Hanging up on Huawei, global firms distancing themselves from the Chinese tech giant despite the U.S. government reprieve. The chips are down. Qualcomm shares hit pre-market by a ruling on the antitrust from a U.S. judge and our exclusive interview with the Boston Fed president. We talk trade, we talk inflation targeting and some presidential tweeting. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. move once again and we have a jam-packed show for you as I mentioned more trade developments an exclusive interview with the Federal Reserve President of Boston of course Eric Rosengren and some Brexit developments and no surprises here not good ones so let's get straight to it let me give you a look at what we're seeing for US futures at this moment they are lower I can tell you following the sentiment that we've forgot the handover from Europe Two Important to point out, though, I think, even with what we're seeing today, that we did manage to claw back some lost ground in yesterday's trading session. The Nasdaq recouping over 1%. So that's two-thirds of the losses that we saw on Monday's decline, with the semiconductor index as well rising more than 2%. Though I have to say, and I mentioned it already, that 90-day reprieve that we got granted from the U.S. government for Huawei yesterday making little difference to the companies that have to decide whether to work with them in the short to medium term, especially when you've got the president reportedly weighing an expansion of his Chinese blacklist too. Now, the market's number one go-to and therefore ours for what the Chinese may be thinking right now is the editor for China's Global Times. Just take a look at this tweet. The U.S. is irrational behaviors, quote, are making Chinese policymakers wonder if Washington is in a rush to reach a trade deal conclusion of the Chinese, drag it out. Americans are about to have a nervous breakdown. Yes, this is first move and you are not operating in a parallel universe, but we will stick with the theme of nervous breakdowns because take a look what we're seeing. Pressure on the pound right now, as I also mentioned. Theresa May's withdrawal deal numero four seems pretty much dead on arrival. Bianca Nabilo is going to be here to explain the what next for us. Also in the mix, of course, too, the Federal Reserve board minutes later today, superseded by the apparent collapse in what the White House had indicated was an imminent trade deal. Fortunately, we've got you covered with our exclusive interview on what their current thinking is. And that is where we're going to kick off the drivers. Here's the Boston Fed President, Eric Rosengren, on how the current trade situation could impact the Federal Reserve's policy thinking. We make assumptions about what we think is likely to happen. My own assumption is that both countries do have an agreement that over time they will come together. I don't know when exactly that will be, but my expectation is that it doesn't have a large impact on my forecast for the economy. 
But that could be wrong. And if it is wrong, then we'll have to think differently about monetary policy. And Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, it's funny because I followed up on that and I said, look, are we being complacent here? And he said, no, actually, we've seen the markets repricing, particularly in the last several sessions. But the base case for the Fed, and you assume it has to be here, is that a deal is reached. I worry about that. I do, too. And, you know, I love economists because they say, well, I think this is going to happen. But if I'm wrong, then I'll rethink <laughs> I'll rethink what my forecast is. And that's exactly how um, economists think. And look, you know, the markets are pretty complacent, I would say, too. I mean, markets are still higher for the year. They're still up, up nicely for the year. I mean, this has been kind of a rough month. No question is they're repricing attentions into the into the situation. But for the year, uh, the, the market is up, even though for the month it is down. So I think that's a reminder that maybe investors haven't fully factored in that there could be a trade war and a trade war that could stay. I mean, just look at what happened today. You know, the president of the United States says that he is happy with where we are. He's happy with uh, tariffs the way they are. And this is the regime he thinks is going to work long term. Uh, And he's threatening to put even more on to to tax basically everything that the Chinese bring in. And the Chinese president um, is also out there at a rare earths metals uh, facility uh, talking about a, a new long march. I mean, these are the kinds of things that both countries clearly seem dug in. Absolutely. And just to refer to that tweet once again, America's about to have a nervous breakdown. That doesn't sound like the Chinese uh, are willing to give ground any time soon. Now, we talked about a lot of things, obviously the tariff impact on higher prices, whether they could be more liberal about uh, an inflation band rather than a target here. Interesting that the Federal Reserve is talking about it. But we also talked about the two vacancies on the uh, Federal Reserve Board, too, and whether perhaps they'd rather just deal with having less members rather than having one joined that perhaps has a perceived political bias. Listen to what he had to say on this point. Whoever's appointed, we can work with. And it's better to have a full contingent of governors than not having a full contingent of governors. It's actually been some time since we've had a full contingent. Uh, So it would be nice if we actually did replace the two vacancies and have that filled. And ideally, it would be by people that would be very concerned about getting the right outcome. I mean, Christine, you and I have talked about this a lot and they'll be adamant and say, look, politics doesn't enter the room. And he reiterated that again. But the perception that the president is influential here matters for markets. Look, it really does. And I I love that he said someone who wants to get the right outcome, because what the president has been interested in here is somebody who is going to rock the boat Um, and people who have been critics of the very existence of the Fed. Now, look, what what I'm hearing is that, you know, these two, the two prior candidates that the president was considering, you know, those were the two outliers. And now there's more comfort in Washington about, you know, a Fed critic would be fine um, as long as it's somebody that the Fed, the people in the Fed think that they could they could work with. So, uh, you know, I think that you'll see whoever the next candidate is will will get that job. Uh, but um, wow, it's likely to be someone who has been critical of the Fed and who wants low rates, I'm sure. Yeah. A calibrated answer there from uh, Eric Rosengren. Yep. Christine Romans, thank you so much for uh, nice joining me to discuss that interview. And congratulations, by the way. 20 years Can you at believe CNN. It? Wow. <laughs> no, I can't. You were a child when you joined. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations again. We are very glad to have you. Yes, big heart from first move. All right, let's move on to our second driver, trade 
Well and truly the focus here, Japan's top mobile carriers delaying sales of new Huawei phones. You've got EE, the UK's largest mobile network, pulling Huawei from their 5G launch. This, of course, despite, as we've mentioned, the government delaying their crackdown for some 90 days on Huawei. Shri's fam joins me now. Despite that reprieve for Huawei, companies are having to make decisions, Sharice, and they're making the decision to step away from the firm. Absolutely, because the reprieve only applies to existing products. That statement from Wilbur Ross said that this reprieve will let Huawei service existing mobile phones and networks. Google, their statement said that we can continue servicing existing Huawei phones. That means that new Huawei phones are not covered under this reprieve, which means that the phones that NDT Docomo and KDDI and SoftBank are planning to roll out in Japan and that EE and Vodafone are planning to roll out in the UK, it is very unlikely that those phones will have access to the Google ecosystem. And without that access, it means more than just losing apps like uh, Gmail and YouTube. Third-party apps also rely on Google services. So your Uber and your Deliveroo apps, which rely on Google Maps, they may no longer be functional on your brand new fancy Huawei Mate 5G phone. It's going to be an ultra-fast phone that you won't be able to use to do very much. So analysts have been telling us that, look, Huawei can survive um, this uh, trade ban for a while, but a long-term ban, Julia, would be crippling. Yeah, crippling for the international business here, too. Whatever else they've got going on in China. Talk to me about the stock price fall for Hikvision, the security firm over in China, because rumors, of course, overnight that the blacklist that the president has for Chinese companies perhaps could expand. Oh, yes, the blacklist, it grows, Um, or reportedly so. Anyway, the New York Times came out with a report, uh, Morningside over here in Hong Kong, saying that Hike Vision was next in the crosshairs, that they could be added to this trade blacklist, and that immediately sent shares plummeting the daily limit in Shenzhen of 10%. They recovered a little bit. I think they closed down about 6%. And Hike Vision is an interesting company. Hike Vision is a surveillance tech company. They make cameras that use AI to track people with facial recognition recognition and also through physical movement like how you walk. And they can also track uh, sudden crowd movements like a crowd suddenly becoming violent or suddenly running. And if you look at that uh, technology in like a retail store or an ATM branch, that seems pretty harmless. But Hike Vision has come under international criticism for its surveillance deals in Xinjiang and Tibet. And U.S. lawmakers have been calling for sanctions on this company since last year. We will look to the Commerce Department today to see if it is added to the entity list and to see if the Trump administration is finally to take action on the sanctions that those lawmakers have called for. You know, Shreese, one of the things I do love about you is how politely you correct me. In the UK, hick basically means dated, so one would not want to call one's company hick vision, but it is hike vision. So I love what you did there, and you were emphasizing the word as well there as delicately as possible, Shreese fam. Thank you so much for that. We have Hi, to help baby. each other out here, Julio. Honestly, yeah. let's be Well, real. you certainly helped me out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All Thank right. you. Yes, let's move on to our third driver now. A major blow for tech titan Qualcomm. Shouldn't be smiling now. A US judge ruling it's violating antitrust laws, ruling it illegally charges firms high prices to license its technology. Samuel Burke is live. 
Okay, Samuel, so talk to me how important this ruling is and also talk to me how closely this connects to the settlement that we just saw between Qualcomm and Apple, because, of course, this is what Apple were accusing Qualcomm of before. Well, no matter how you pronounce Qualcomm, it is a very tough week, if not month, and now tough year for this company. They can't get a break, not even a little bit of oxygen, it feels like. This is an incredibly important decision for Qualcomm. Certainly did not go in their favor. That's why the stock is over, is down over 10% in pre-market right now. Essentially, what this decision says is that their whole business model comes into question. Apple was always furious at them for charging so much, a percentage of the phone sales uh, for licensing the chips that go into their phones. And now the government has says that has said this is a violation of antitrust laws and they over use their position in the market to squash their competitors. So number one, if you're a consumer, next time you go to buy a phone, if you wonder why it's so expensive, this is why in part. Number two, Qualcomm has to rethink their business model. Number three, the entire industry has to rethink their business model. And certainly Apple saying, we told you so. Yeah, I mean, this is quite fascinating. Clearly, Qualcomm are going to fight this once again. But to your point, this is not just about Qualcomm. This is far bigger a bigger story for the industry here too. Certainly every chip maker that we've been talking about as part of the Huawei story is affected by this. Anybody right. who makes these components, especially chips, and license them, licenses them is going to have to go back to the drawing board, at least when the case is finished being appealed, and think about how they're, they're going to make money. There's a very good reason why the stock is down 10% right now, because this will mean less revenue for them. Undoubtedly, my real question is, who are the players that are going to come in at this point in the market, given the tension? that we see with Huawei. Maybe uh, a company like Qualcomm won't be as aggressive, but the market is really a, a brutal place to be right now. And I think a lot of companies like Huawei are going to become more uh, self-reliant given the circumstances, certainly while Donald Trump is in office. So I'm not sure that there's another American company out there saying, oh, great time to get into the chip industry, which is certainly what the Trump administration would like. Yeah, it's such a great point. It's kind of you're caught in all directions here. Some huge challenges. We'll watch the uh, Semiconductors Index once again. I was just saying it caught up some ground yesterday. Watch it again today. Samuel Burke, great points. Thank you very much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. The UK's opposition party says it won't back what it's calling a rehash of the Prime Minister's Brexit deal. It comes a day after Theresa May announced her latest version of her withdrawal agreement. But Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has ruled out supporting a repackaged form of Mrs May's deal. Bianca Namilo is live in London to explain what's going on. Bianca, it's some feat when you offer the option of a vote on a second referendum and you outrage your Brexiteers, but also the people that are calling for a people's vote and a second vote say they're not voting for your deal either. So where does that leave us? Exactly, Julia. It's a feat and a skill which the Prime Minister seems to have honed and refined to perfection over the last couple of months. So now what we're seeing is the Prime Minister presenting the withdrawal agreement bill and managing to isolate herself further. She has aggravated and caused the Brexiteers to feel betrayed because she has a, uh, a concession in there which would essentially facilitate a second referendum. She's tried to appease some of the DUP and those concerned about the contentious backstop. She's made some overtures to protecting um, workers' rights as well as environmental protections for the Labour Party. Labour said that that hasn't gone far enough. As you mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn said they won't be backing the deal. But I think it really is the 
outcry from the Prime Minister's own party, which is such a concern. She seems to have lost support from the last time she presented um, her iteration of her Brexit plan, which already wasn't sufficient to get across the line. So it looks like she's not going to be able to get anywhere with this. So inevitably, the voices pushing for the Prime Minister to leave are growing louder. She said that she is going to depart over the next couple of months. There will be a leadership contest. But if she isn't able to get this Brexit plan any further, and given that she's not pushing any other policy through the House of Commons, practically now, not just in terms of a critique on her handling, there is no point of her being there. So does she step down or do we see the powerful 1922 committee of the Conservative Party here change their own rules and have another confidence vote? I mean, should she hang around for that ultimately if she's paralysed? You're right to mention the 22 committee. It is powerful, and that really is where the impetus is coming from. The Prime Minister could say, well, could repeat again that she is going to step down, that she will resign, but realistically, the control of the situation is not with her. It lies with the 22, and it lies with the party. Now, parties, it's, they're like living organisms, so they can change their own rules. There would be the possibility for members of the Conservative Party at this extraordinary meeting next month to change the rules to try and oust her sooner rather than later. The 22 committee could also do something similar. So really the question is, how desperate is the party? How soon do they feel like it's essential the Prime Minister leaves? And that will drive them to a course of action which will try and oust her as soon as possible. And the Prime Minister will just have to accept whatever she's presented with because this can't go any further. She has shown today, well, we've seen the apotheosis of her compromise strategy just completely falling to pieces. Yeah, fallen by the wayside. Bianca Nabilo, thank you so much for that. All right. Britain's second biggest steelmaker has collapsed just a few hours ago. Emergency talks aimed at agreeing a loan from the UK government ended without agreement. British Steel is now in compulsory liquidation. That means up to 5,000 jobs at the company are now at risk. It also threatens a further 20,000 jobs located at their suppliers. British Steel partly blames Brexit uncertainty for a slump in sales. U.S. House Democrats have subpoenaed the president's former communications director, Hope Hicks, in their probe of possible obstruction of justice by President Trump. The Judiciary Committee wants to ask her about a misleading statement regarding Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russian lawyer back in 2016. The committee has also subpoenaed Anne Donaldson, one-time chief of staff to former White House counsel Don McGahn. All right, we are going to take a break here on First Move, but still ahead, the Fed is forced to be patient again. This time, of course, as you heard on Trade, we'll bring you plenty more of my exclusive interview with the president of the Boston Fed ahead of the Fed minutes later today. And no pulling the wool over Elon Musk's eyes. How one simple tweet landed someone a job at Tesla. We've got the details. Stay with CNN. to first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where we're anticipating a weaker open for a U.S. equity markets on this Tuesday. No, it's Wednesday today. I'm losing track of days. Alan Ruskin is a global head of G10 FX strategy and a macro strategist at Deutsche Bank. Alan, it is Wednesday. We're good. Good. Okay. <laughs> Talk to me about what you think with China at the moment because we've talked over the last few sessions about how closely investors are watching the exchange rate right now between dollar and the Chinese yuan and that key seven level. How important is that? 
That level has been important in the past. We've seen the Chinese defend that seven level in the past. It's got more psychological meaning than uh, really meaning in terms of the economics. You know, if we blew through seven uh, as a number from a, uh, a trade standpoint, a competitiveness standpoint, it's not that important. But from a psychological standpoint, it's usually important. So, I mean, what it would mean is if they weaken their currency, it makes their exports cheaper to offset some of the tariffs. As you said, psychologically, perhaps more for the White House than anyone else, it would be seen as um, a step up, an escalation in the current trade battle. How high do you think it is on the pecking order here in terms of retaliation for the Chinese? I don't think it's their first step. Um, I think... Because they know. They know that uh, the U.S. would see this as a direct attempt to manipulate the exchange rate and offset the tariffs directly uh, in terms of the tariffs' competitiveness impact. So they don't want to go down that path right now. That would be a genuine step in terms of escalation. I think at a minimum we get through the G20 meeting, see how President Trump and President Xi get on with each other where that comes out. And if that doesn't go well, then I think the seven level is going to get broken. Wow. Do you think the Chinese are also propping up their equity market here? I mean, we know that there's interference and things like they set their own currency strength. They make strategic choices. What about the stock market here? Because the, the sort of difference between the relative pressure that we're seeing on the U.S. markets versus the Chinese markets also feels important here just in terms of the overall rhetoric and the mood right now. There's certainly a lot of uh, market talk about uh, the Chinese supporting the equity market. The equity market's trading very differently to times past, so it's certainly relatively stable. At the same time, I have to say the U.S. market has been remarkably stable. You see the VIX at 15, and you say, my God, really, is there really a trade war going on here? So uh, on both sides, I'd say it's it's quite uh, quiet. I love that you mentioned that point, because we spoke to Eric Rosengren of the Federal Reserve, and he was like, no, investors aren't being complacent. The Fed isn't complacent here. Um, One, that they believe ultimately a deal will happen. But given the repricing that we've seen a bit over the last several sessions, investors are aware. I'm not sure I agree with that. Yeah, I'm I'm a little worried. I think they're asymmetric risks. I think whilst the trade issues are boiling over, there's almost no chance of us making new highs on the S&P. And there's a definitely lot more chance that we have a large downside move. So there's definitely asymmetric risks in terms of price action. What about for FX markets here? I mean, we've mentioned dollar China, but what's the trade here then if you think that the risks here are very asymmetric and the risks to downside here, particularly in the stock market, and to general sentiment here is so high? Yes, I think uh, the way the foreign exchange market is looking at it is looking at surrogates that relate to China. Korea has been really in the frame, so the Korean won has weakened substantially. Uh, We've seen Taiwan weaken, other Asians generally on the weaker side. And then in the G10 world, the Aussie dollar, which has had a lot going on, obviously an election as well, (laughs) but a lot going on there, but it's also tended to weaken as well. So um, anything that's tangential to China is in the mix there. And the foreign exchange markets are trading much as you would expect. What about the bond market? Because one of the tweets that's come out from effective Chinese propaganda and and obviously newspapers, Twitter handles that are very close to the government here is that we could sell treasuries, largest foreign owner of US debt, we could sell them. How credible is that? Uh, Again, not a first order of call, really. I mean, the Chinese, I think, are pragmatic. They don't want to hurt their own interests. 
there's no real alternatives. You've got three trillion dollars of reserves, really. What, what you're, else you're, do you you're, invest exactly. In? So you're going to own a lot of treasuries regardless. You don't want to really disrupt global markets because it's going to feed back to your own economy as well. So I think this is uh, really low on the totem pole in terms of actions. This is such a complex dance. And Roskin, thank you so much for joining us My here pleasure. at the New York Stock Exchange. Right, we are counting down to the market open, as I mentioned there. And you can take a look at US futures right now. Once again, we are under pressure, though we did take back a significant proportion of the losses that we saw in Monday's trading session yesterday. So it'll be interesting to see how this session plays out. But clearly, a lot of nervousness under the scenes, particularly for the technology sector. Qualcomm, of course, in the firing line too. Plenty more to come. And our exclusive interview, of course, with Eric Rosengren. Stay with CNN. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange. It is Wednesday. I've got my days straight now. We were expecting a softer open for the equity markets today, and that's what we're seeing. Remember, it comes off the back of a positive session yesterday, though, where we saw the Nasdaq in particular outperforming, ending the session up more than 1%. So I think choppiness, general nervousness about the tensions between China and the United States, and of course, technology in particular caught in the crossfire. We're also going to be watching the chip makers more broadly in the session, the semiconductors, amid uh, the noise and news on Qualcomm too, which I'll walk you through in just a few seconds. Let me walk you through now some of the global movies that we've seen, because we've also had some further earnings from the retail sector too. Targets, Q1 earnings and sales beating expectations. E-commerce front and center, those sales jumping some 42%. Thanks to their curbside pickup service, that's something Amazon, of course, doesn't offer. It maintained also their full year outlook, despite the looming 25% tariffs on apparel and footwear imports from China. Right now, Target up some 7% early on in the session. Qualcomm, as we've mentioned already in the show, a federal judge ruling the chipmaker violated antitrust laws, saying its patent licensing practices, quote, strangled competition. It comes after the U.S. Federal Trade Commission filed the lawsuit back in 2017. The judge is ordering Qualcomm to change how it calculates royalties, also license its patents to rivals at fair prices. Qualcomm will appeal the ruling, of course, right now down some 9% in the session. Tesla wants gain in focus. Citigroup this time cutting its price target to $191 a share. It also said there's a 40% chance that shares could collapse to $36. So that's more than an 80% reduction from where we're trading right now. Analysts citing both demand and cash flow concerns. It's more of the same. We've heard this time and time again. Morgan Stanley, if you remember, said this week it's absolute bear case for Tesla is $10 a share, though admittedly its base case is much higher than that. Right now, Tesla down a further 2%. Something else, of course, that's also dropping in currency land is the British pound edging lower in the session amid some fresh Brexit chaos. Sterling falling below that 127 mark versus the US dollar. Fresh fears that the UK could be lurching towards a messy exit from the EU. That, after UK opposition party Labour said it won't back the Prime Minister's last-ditch effort to get a Brexit deal through Parliament next month. This is Theresa May faces renewed pressure 
from her own party. Nigel Evans is a Conservative MP and is also a Joint Executive Secretary of the party's powerful 1922 committee. And Nigel, always a pleasure to have you on First Move, even if I'm in a different location. Talk to me about the potential rule Hello, changes Julia. here for the 1922 committee. Can you succeed in forcing a second confidence vote on the Prime Minister here? Yeah, as it currently stands, the rules say that you can't uh, contest uh, a leader of a, the Conservative Party within a 12-month period after you've had a vote of confidence. Well, we, we've had one in December. Uh, but the, the meeting that's taking place today, uh, 18 uh, Conservative MPs will meet. We are the executive committee of uh, the Conservative MPs, if you like. It's called the 1922 committee. And uh, we will uh, decide whether we want to change the rules or not. And if we decide to change the rules today... Uh, then it will take a number of MPs to write letters to the chairman of the 1922 committee, who is Sir Graham Brady. And if the threshold is reached, and at the moment the, the number of letters is 48, uh, we could decide to change the number of letters that, is, that are necessary too. But however many letters will be necessary, once that's triggered, then uh, there will be a vote of uh, confidence in the prime minister. But we'll see, because uh, we had a vote a few weeks ago and we decided rather narrowly not to change the rules. But a couple of things have happened since then. Uh, the talks between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party have broken down uh, completely. Uh, and, of course, the Prime Minister is, has decided to bring forward the withdrawal agreement bill early in June. But as you've just intimated, um, the forecast is not looking particularly good for that because uh, the leader of the Labour Party has said that he's not going to support it. Uh, the Scottish nationalists aren't going to support it. And there's now a growing number of Conservative Brexiteers who have said, even though they supported her deal second time or third time, they will not support it on this fourth occasion. I mean, you're one of those people who voted yes for her deal twice, and now even you are saying, I'm simply not going for this withdrawal deal the fourth time around. What, why are you making that decision at this stage? Are you suggesting that actually you'd rather see the UK leave via a hard exit at this stage, or you're willing to risk a second referendum, even a general election here that sees the Conservative Party ousted from power? No, I, I, I'd rather us listen to the 17.4 million people uh, who voted in 2016. It's almost three years ago now, uh, and just leave the European Union. But the reality is, and the Prime Minister has said herself, uh, that she will be leaving uh, 10 Downing Street probably by the end of the summer. That's all the intimations that we've got. And then somebody else will be taking over the leadership of the party. And the question then you've got to ask yourself is, is it better for the new prime minister to have a clean sheet completely, be able to rebu reboot the negotiations with the European Union because they will have had elections themselves. Uh, those elections are taking place tomorrow. The results will be known on Sunday. But they'll also have a new commission as well. And I, my own personal view is it is far better rather than to saddle the new leader with something that may well be toxic. It may have a customs union in it. It could have a single market in it. It could have a second referendum in it. Far better to allow the new leader of the Conservative Party a clean sheet to be able to negotiate again with the, the new commission rather than to be handed a uh, toxic baton, which quite frankly will poison uh, our relationship with the, uh, the electorate for maybe a few years to come. So can we conclude by that that, one, if this withdrawal deal comes to Parliament, it's going to fail? And uh, my follow-up question to that would be, is Boris Johnson the person that should lead the Conservative Party? Would he get your vote? 
Um, well, the first one first. Um, do I think that the withdrawal agreement is going to pass? And the answer is no. Uh, but uh, there's also speculation that it may never even be put before Parliament, uh, that uh, the whips will do the arithmetic, find out that it's not going to pass, and therefore why have the embarrassment of it failing what is in effect a fourth time. Then we move on, uh, let's say, to your second question, which is, uh, after Theresa's days, who's best to take over? Well, that uh, is going to be the job of people like myself who will be conducting that election. I'm one of six uh, uh, Conservative MPs who will be holding those elections. But there's been about 16 or 17 Conservative MPs who said they are interested. So there's going to be a lot of runners and riders. But my own view, talking to MPs, is that they would be looking towards a Brexiteer, somebody who is going to win the next general election for them, as well as delivering the Brexit that people voted for in 2016. Now, I'm not going to say who I'm supporting, uh, but all, all I do know is that my preference is that when we've, when we've whittled down the candidates to two, and that's the responsibility of the MPs, those two names will go to the membership of the Conservative Party throughout the United Kingdom. It will be their responsibility then to select one. In the past, I'm afraid Theresa May didn't go through that exercise uh, because the person that was up against her pulled out and supported Theresa May in the end. I don't want a coronation this time. I do want it to go to the membership, and that will give whoever wins greater authority with the membership and greater authority in Parliament. Yes, makes sense. Nigel Evans, sir, thank you so much for joining us on Pleasure. the show. Pleasure. Lovely uh, talking to you, Julia. We'll see how it goes. Likewise. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move Still to Come. Stepping on toes, what happens when the U.S. president tries to take the lead in the difficult dance between rising interest rates and stock markets? More of our interview with the head of the Boston Federal Reserve right ahead. Welcome back to the chat room. Investors may be waiting for the minutes of the Federal Reserve's last meeting, where, if you remember, at that point, the White House was indicating that a U.S.-China trade deal was swiftly approaching. There's just one problem, of course. The political landscape has shifted pretty dramatically since then as hopes of a deal near collapsed. Fear not, we've got you covered. I sat down for an exclusive interview with Eric Rosengren, president of the Boston Federal Reserve. Here's what he had to say about that. So it's difficult because there is a lot of uncertainty about mm. what the actual outcome will be. And it does make a difference whether first the tariffs actually do go on and if they go on, how long they go on and whether there's any follow on to the, for the next round of tariffs. So we'll have to wait and see. We make assumptions about what we think is likely to happen. My own assumption is that both countries do have an agreement that over time they will come together. I don't know when exactly that will be. But my expectation is that it doesn't have a large impact on my forecast for the economy. But that could be wrong. And if it is wrong, then we'll have to think differently about monetary policy. But both countries do have a strong incentive to try to get to an agreement. Hopefully they are able to do that over the course of this year. I mean, right now the rhetoric is flying thick and fast. Do you acknowledge that the hope or the expectation of a deal here could be complacent, whether it's the Federal Reserve or whether it's for financial markets and for investors at this moment? So I don't think anybody's complacent. I, you certainly see fairly large financial market movements when news comes out that people view as indicating that there may not be an agreement as quickly as others had hoped. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty, and uncertainty is bad for the U.S. economy as well. So we have to be concerned that the longer this goes on without some resolution, there are some costs just to having this period of waiting where we're not sure what the outcome will be. 
Can we be clear, because I do think there's some confusion out there, that tariffs are a tax on imports. They're a tax on businesses, US businesses, because they're paying them. And if they offset the cost to US consumers, it becomes a tax on consumers too. It's the United States that puts the cost ultimately of tariffs rather than anyone else. Tariffs are a tax on imported goods. And so that will increase the price of those imported goods. And it operates like any other tax that's specific to a certain product. It will increase the price. Now, how much the price increases depends on a variety of things, including whether you can buy other goods that are very similar mm. or whether suppliers are able to produce goods in a non-tariff country. But the one thing that it does do is it raises prices. You mentioned the impact that it has on the U.S. economy. Do you see this at the Federal Reserve right now as the biggest risk to the economic outlook? I would certainly say it's one of the biggest risks, that uh, tariffs have potential to slow down the economy very significantly, not only here but abroad as well. What about where we lie now today for the U.S. economy versus where we were at the beginning of the year because there was a real fear factor into the back end of last year that we were going to see a material slowing and actually the data hasn't shown that. Yeah, the economy is actually in a better place than many people expected we would be at this time. Mm. Uh, in particular, the first quarter growth was higher than people were expecting. The rest of the world's turned out to be a little stronger than people were expecting, both in Europe and China, so I think that's a positive sign as well. The consumer confidence seems to have come back and the stock market has recovered substantially, even though it's come down a bit in the last two weeks. It's substantially higher than it was at the end of the fourth quarter. So all those are significant signs of a positive outcome for the U.S. economy. And I think if you took tariffs off and didn't have to worry about tariffs, we'd have a pretty strong underlying economy. And my expectation is as long as we come up with some kind of an agreement over the course of this year, that that underlying strength of the economy will prevail. Unmoved by market moves, Donald Trump may be uh, firmly focused on the relationship between stock prices and changes in interest rates. But the head of the Boston Federal Reserve says they watch markets closely, but it's all about the economic impact, is what he told me. So we have to think about financial market conditions, but we shouldn't be driven by financial market conditions. So small changes in the stock market that don't affect inflation or unemployment shouldn't be something that we get particularly concerned about. If the stock market declines enough that we're worried about consumption and investment going down significantly, then that's a financial market condition that we should react to, not because the stock price is lower, but because we're worried about the economic outcomes more broadly. Sometimes I think the markets forget that our goal is not to set a stock price. It is to get our inflation and unemployment consistent with what our mandates are by Congress so that we will react if it's a very negative shock, and we should, because that's an indication that more than likely the economy will slow down. Is that what happened in December? Is that what led to the patient stance? Because you looked at the sheer fall that we saw, the, the tightening of financial conditions, because it wasn't just about stock markets, and when actually there's big spillover effects potentially here. I think there was a risk that if we didn't take some action that the spillover effects would be more significant than were acceptable at that time. So I think the pivot that occurred around the end of the year is completely appropriate. Mm. And I think it is good news that the economy is a much more solid footing. There's still plenty of challenges for the economy, so I think we have to think about it at each situation. I think monetary policy is appropriate right now. 
but we're going to be watching what happens with trade. We're going to be watching what happens in financial markets more generally. And we'll have to just see over time how the data comes in. But the message to investors is don't get complacent because it always comes down to the economy, not about the magnitude of moves in the market. That's correct. I mean, we think about financial market conditions. We certainly think about if stock prices go down enough that businesses don't want to invest and consumers become much more worried about whether they want to spend. There are quite a few economic studies that have highlighted that consumers tend to be more focused on stock markets. It's a little bit more visible. You see it day in and day out. You can see it on new shows such as this one, what's happening in the stock Try market. Not to be alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> so we do so I think consumers are quite aware of what's happening to the stock market. But the market can move one or two percent. That certainly doesn't affect consumers' decisions, it doesn't affect firms' decisions. What about politics at this moment? Because I know you've been adamant and you've said, look, politics does not enter that room when the Federal Reserve makes a policy decision. But we do have a a president here in the United States that, um, let's call it, encourages the concept of lower rates. We do what's appropriate. So politics does not enter the room. The discussion is pretty technical when we talk about monetary policy. So there's very little political discussion that occurs uh, at the Federal Reserve, and I think that is appropriate. You want a Federal Reserve that's politically independent. But I think we're working very hard to try to communicate much more clearly what we're doing and why we're doing it. And hopefully, if people see us doing what's right for the economy, they'll realize that that's not politically motivated. And so I'd be much more concerned if we were going back to where we were 20 or 30 years ago, where monetary policy was much more mystical, and there wasn't much communication with the public at large, with Congress or anybody else. I think having a transparent Fed is exactly where we should be. And even if it causes some volatility in the short run, understanding why we make decisions that we make is an important component of the process. Still to come in that interview, should the Fed stick to that 2% inflation target or be more flexible and give themselves room to ease up on rate hikes? That discussion next. Welcome back to the show and returning to our interview with the president of the Boston Federal Reserve, Eric Rosengren, and I talked about the possibility of the Fed adopting a more flexible inflation target. So allowing prices to rise more than 2%, particularly in areas like a recovery. The counter, of course, to that is the risk is you don't raise rates enough and you end up having less room to cut rates when a slowdown strikes. Here's what he had to say on that point. An important consideration is how long you think inflation will be below our 2% target. My own view is that over time, we're actually going to see inflation closer to our 2% target and that most of those effects are going to turn out to be transitory. But we'll have to wait and see if that's the case. That was the message to markets. Look, don't fixate too much on the inflation number, the core inflation number right now, because if it does pick up, we could mistakenly cut rates. If it weren't transitory, there is an argument here to cut rates. So if it's transitory, then we're likely to be very close to 2%. I would say that the Federal Reserve has been missing pretty persistently on its 2% inflation target. (laughs) And if you look at averages over 5, 10, 15 years, we haven't missed by a lot, but we have missed. And so even though any one inflation number isn't a problem, if you're consistently below the target, you start being worried that you need to stimulate the economy enough to make sure that you actually do get that outcome. We'll have to see if that actually does occur. 
I'm a little bit more confident than some that that will happen because wages are going up. So our current framework is that we should be hitting a 2% and that it should be symmetric, which means we should be a little bit above sometimes and a little bit below sometimes. Uh, we haven't been as successful as we want to be, and one way to address that is to talk about an inflation range where you're more comfortable being a bit above 2% during good times, knowing that when you're in a recession and we've had some bad shocks, that we're probably not going to be successful at keeping it at 2%. So that would imply having a little bit more flexibility than what we've had over the current framework. Is the risk, though, there, if you are a little bit more flexible on your inflation targeting level that you never actually manage to get rates up again to give you some ability to then cut rates if the economy slows down. You could argue we're kind of in that position right now. You raise a very important question, which is how much room do we have when the next recession likely occurs? So if the next recession occurs and we're at the current interest rate, our federal funds rate now is 2.4%. Normally we reduce rates by 5% or 6% in a recession. So we don't have nearly as much room as we've had in the past. That's one of the things that we're actually going to be considering when we think about the framework for monetary policy, is how can we make sure that we have a little bit more policy space? It would argue either going to negative rates or back to QE again, perhaps buying even more than bonds next time, buying equities perhaps, as we've seen in other countries. Is that the risk? So there is a risk that we'd have to do quantitative easing. We're prohibited from holding anything that, for like now. equities, for <laughs> now, well, for now we're, we're prohibited. Um, other central banks have more flexibility in that. We do not. My own personal view is that we should not have negative interest rates, that I don't think they've been as successful where they've been tried in Europe and Japan. But I do think it is a concern that we have enough policy space that monetary policy can react to negative shocks that hit the economy. Thanks to the Boston Fed President, Eric Rosengren, there. All right, let me give you a look at today's boardroom brief, too. Two of China's largest airlines are demanding compensation from Boeing over the grounding of its 737 MAX planes. Air China and China Eastern Airlines want reimbursement for the costs they've incurred since the aircraft was deemed unsafe. Chinese state media also report that the Chinese Southern Airlines is asking for compensation also. Amazon is set to face pressure from investors today, shareholders gathering in Seattle for the annual general meeting. They'll be voting on 12 proposals, including a ban on selling facial recognition technology to governments. And finally, a tweet can make or break careers, as Elon Musk could know better than most. He reportedly has appointed the man behind this tweet as Tesla's new social media manager. The Brit's absolute unit meme went viral last year and so charmed Musk that he briefly made it his profile picture. As you can see, he does have a degree, though. I have to say, I did look at his uh, educational qualifications just to give him cover there. All right, let me give you a look uh, to what we're seeing as far as the markets are concerned. Some pressure. Keep an eye on the tech sector. As you can see, some two-tenths of 1% right now lower. We'll be back on the Express for more. But for now, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.